you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. This passage comes in the section of John's Gospel, which has been referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. So John gives us this extended um, extended glimpse into Jesus and the disciples' conversation, and particularly Jesus' teaching during that time when they're celebrating the Last Supper or the First Supper before they will leave and head off to the Mount of Olives the night before he is betrayed. So John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. Uh, please now hear the word of our God. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he again write this word upon our hearts this morning. If you take out your order of worship and turn to the confessional reading section, this morning we are confessing together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20, question and answer 53. So Lord's Day 20, question and answer 53. I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 53 asks, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that the Holy with the Father and the Son is eternal God. Second, that he is given also to me, so that through true faith he makes me share in Christ and all his benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me forever. Well, as you know, we, our catechism has three main sections, and from uh, someone who is not an adult, what are these three main sections? Yes. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Which of these sections are we in? Violet? Grace. Very good. And you guys all should get this one because we talked about this on Wednesday night. What are the, the three elements of true faith? Matha uh, uh, Matthias. Marcus. Very good. And the content of this faith. Matthias? The Apostles' Creed. Very good. And we are uh, continuing our way through the Apostles' Creed. 
And as you know, this creed is a Trinitarian document. Trinitarian document. We have considered how uh, God the Father, who he is in his works of creation and providence. We've considered God the Son and who, his, who he is in his personhood, that he is both God and man. But we've also considered his work of redemption, his conception, his suffering, his suffering under Pontius Pilate, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his ascension, his session. And now we are moving on to consider God the Holy Spirit. And in one sense, you can think of the rest of the articles of the creed as being subsumed under the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one through the Word that creates a church, a holy Catholic church and a communion of saints. The Spirit is the one who takes the spoils of Christ's victory and brings them to us. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So today we are going to be considering directly the, the, uh, what we believe, what we confess as a Reformed church about the Holy Spirit. Now, this third member of the Trinity, I think for many people, seems clouded in mystery. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is his work among us today? When we think about our secular culture, I think our secular culture latches on to the Holy Spirit the most. They don't have much time for God the Father, they don't have much time for God the Son, but our culture, which is not very religious, but is quite spiritual, can, in their mind, uh, appropriate, accommodate the spirit to their own distinctive spiritual activities, meditation, yoga, engagement in, in nature. Now, of course, their engagement in this spirit is quite antithetical to the spirit that's revealed to us in, in the scriptures, but we do live in a culture that's, that's not religious, but it does um, embrace a certain level of spirituality. But then when we bring this discussion within the walls of the church, there's still a lot of mystery that surrounds this person. On the one, one uh, end of the spectrum, I think you have those who devalue the work of the Spirit in their own lives, in the life of the church, in the drama of redemptive history. The Spirit is at work throughout the pages of the New Testament, not just at Pentecost. It was there in creation. It was there uh, during Israel's time in the wilderness and in the promised land. It was there at Jesus' conception and birth. Uh, the Spirit overshadowed Mary in, in that miraculous event. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have those who confuse the Spirit with their own selfhood. They confuse the Spirit with their own thoughts and they confuse the Spirit with their own, their own emotions. And they conflate then a thought and a feeling to the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says that the Spirit bears witness to our spirit. There's a distinction. The Holy Spirit is not our spirit. And this, this group would also impute capital S spiritual activity to almost every occurrence in life. And so what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? Who is he? What is he up to in our day and age? What's the scripture say about this? As a Reformed church, have we forgotten about this third member of the Trinity? Well, I'd like us to reflect upon what we believe and what we confess as a Reformed church about this third member of, of the Trinity. Now, you'll see that we only have, there's only one question and answer that's devoted to the person work of the Holy Spirit in our catechism. But... 
That's not to say that the Spirit is absent in the other Lord's days or question answers. In fact, uh, the Spirit permeates all of our theology. And we don't have time, but we could go through all of the various other question and answers that address and speak to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and the drama of redemption. So even though the catechism only devotes one question and answer, it doesn't mean that the, spirit, uh, the catechism doesn't speak about the spirit elsewhere. Well, you'll notice that the answer of question 53 very nicely is divided in two main sections. So the first section is about the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? And then the second part of the answer talks about the Spirit's activity, the Spirit's job description, the Spirit's work in this world in the life of the church. What I'd like us to do then is just to go through this answer, and I'll draw your attention to a number of things that we see here in this, uh, in this answer. So first, we see that the Holy Spirit is God. Notice that we confess that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. The Spirit is God. The Spirit is God. He shares with the Father and the Son all power and glory. He isn't uh, somehow less than the Father and, or less than the Son. Well, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, there's a number of places in Scripture where Scripture speaks of the Spirit with divine qualities. So listen to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, the author of the Hebrews is talking about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And, he's, and the author of the Hebrews says that Jesus um, uh, gave of himself, shed his blood through the eternal spirit. So Jesus' sacrifice of, on the cross was through the eternal spirit. The eternal spirit. Eternality is a divine quality. We are not eternal beings. We are everlasting beings. To be an eternal being, you have to exist outside of the context of time. We all have a beginning. We're everlasting in the sense that uh, we will have a continued uh, existence, body and soul, in, in the age to come. But we are not eternal because we have a beginning. God is the only eternal being who has no beginning nor, no en or, nor end. And the Spirit shares in that eternality. So we see that the Spirit, the Spirit is God. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 5, a, a, a narrative that many of us may be familiar with, the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira, when Peter confronts them based on their sin and their lying, this is what Peter says to them. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And then Peter goes on to say, you have, you have not lied to man, but to God. So notice what Peter's saying. First he's saying, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, no, you have lied to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. So we confess that the Holy Spirit is God. Remember what we looked at a number of weeks ago at the beginning of our exposition of the Apostles' Creed? The question uh, that said that God is revealed to us as three distinct persons in one true eternal God. Three distinct persons existing in one true essence 
So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit share equal power and glory and are all uh, on share in that essence. So the Holy Spirit is God. Well, the rest of the answer then goes on to talk about what the Spirit does. What the Spirit does for us. And notice the first thing that we learn about the activity of the Spirit. What is the first thing that the Spirit does? And this is not a rhetorical question. It's the first thing that the Spirit does. In the passive voice. Share in Christ. Even before that, it's, it's in the passive voice. He's given, yes. The Spirit's given to us. He's given to us. And we see this particularly in the book of Acts when Christ goes up in his ascension and the Spirit comes down. The Spirit's poured out upon the church. And there is a qualitative distinction between the Spirit's activity after Pentecost and the Spirit's activity before Pentecost. Of course, the Spirit was at work in the midst of the covenant community before Pentecost, but there's a decisive, qualitative distinction after Pentecost. And therefore, the, the, the Spirit's givenness to the church is demonstrated at Pentecost, when Christ ascends into heaven and pours out his Spirit. Pours out his Spirit. And this is what we see in John 16. Notice that Jesus is, is with his disciples in this upper room, awaiting his departure. He's about to be crucified, and then he will ascend into heaven. And his disciples are, of course, sad and sorrowful at this reality. Jesus assures them by saying that it is to your advantage that I go, because if I do not go, you will not have the helper, the comforter, the advocate who will dwell within you. Meaning, we have it better than the disciples had it when they had Christ in their presence bodily. Why? Because we have the Spirit in the fullness of, of, of His measure since we live after Pentecost. And so Jesus can say, it is to your advantage that I go so that you might receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's given to the church. He's given to, um, to us. And this, this, this event of Pentecost is a one-time event. A one-time event where, where Christ pours out the Spirit upon his church. Well, the Spirit's given to us for a, a particular purpose, and this is already alluded to um, earlier. And if you look with me in, in our question and answer, we read that the Spirit's given to us to do a certain work, so that through true faith, he makes me share in Christ and all his benefits. Through true faith, he makes me share in Christ and all his benefits. So he's given to us to do something. And the first thing that he does is he creates faith. Implicit from this answer is that he creates faith in our hearts, and faith then is the hand that receives Christ and all his benefits. So the Spirit's given to us to create faith. Boys and girls, this last week we considered how faith is a gift. It's a gift. That's brought about by the Spirit of God. Back in question answer 21 of our catechism, we confessed what we mean uh, when we uh, speak about faith. What is true faith? And the answer is that uh, true faith is not only assured knowledge, whereby we hold as truth, all that God has revealed to us in his word, but it's also a hearty trust, which the Holy Spirit works in us by the gospel. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who works this true faith in our hearts, causing us to be able to uh, give our assent to the knowledge that we have of Scripture and place our hearty trust in that knowledge. The Spirit is the one who grants us the ability to do that. So why? Why is it? Why do we need the Spirit to create this faith? Why can't we just as autonomous individuals, give our assent, place our trust in this knowledge of Scripture. Why do we need the Spirit to give us this gift of faith? Well, it's because of who we are. We have to remember that we are those who have Adam as our father, at least originally speaking. Adam is a father, and thus we share in his original sin, and thus we have sinful human natures. We have sinful human natures. And so we have as sinful human beings, freedom to live and operate within the bounds of our human nature, our sinful human nature. We can't act contrary to that sinful human nature. Boys and girls, I mentioned this uh, on Wednesday night, but imagine you're playing outside in the mud and uh, it's raining outside, it's muddy outside, you're barefoot and you decide to come into the house without washing your feet. What's going to happen? You're going to make a mess. (laughs) In fact, you're going to know exactly where you have been because you're going to leave a trail of mud. Every time you put your foot down, you're going to leave a footprint of mud. Well, in a similar way, as those who share in Adam's first sin, everything we do is tainted with sin. Every thought that we have is tainted with sin. Every word that we speak is tainted with sin. Every, every action that we do is tainted with sin. Just like whenever, wherever you walk in your house, you're going to leave a trail of mud. We're sinful human beings. And therefore we have freedom to sin, but we can't act contrary to that nature, which means we can't choose the good. We can't choose righteousness. We can't profess faith in and of ourselves. Also mentioned uh, on, on Wednesday night that you know, imagine if you imagine animals had human capacities and you could dialogue with them and you talk to a fish and ask the fish if they could uh, if they can fly. They'll look at you pretty crazy and say, no, I can't, I can't fly. I can only do fish-like things. I can do a lot of fish things, but I can't do bird things because I have a fish nature. And so, too, as sinful human beings, we have sinful natures, and thus we can only do sinful things. We can't act contrary to that nature, just like a fish can't fly. It's what we confessed earlier in our catechism in the, the guilt section when it says, Are we so depraved that we're totally unable to do any good and prone always to all evil? Yes, unless we're born again by the Spirit of God, unless our nature is changed. If the fish, if a fish ever has hope of flying like a bird, a miracle needs to happen. The fish needs to be transformed into a bird. And so, too, if we ever have hope of professing true faith in Jesus Christ, we need our nature to be changed. And that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit comes and causes us to be born again, regenerates our hearts so that we can place our assent to the knowledge of Scripture, so that we can place our hearty trust in the gospel which is revealed to us in the Word of God. 1 John 5.1 says that the, those who believe have been born of God. Listen to the, the syntax of that. Those who believe have been born of God. Have been born of, born of God is in the perfect tense, meaning it, it happened in the past before we believe. 
those who believe have been born of God, which means that we need this miracle of, of, of regeneration to occur to give us the ability to profess faith. And that's why faith is a gift. And thus faith is both a gift and it's personal. It involves an act of our will. So we need the Spirit to change our hearts, to change our nature, so that we can, as an act of the will, personally embrace Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. Faith is a gift that then allows us to profess faith. This is what the Spirit does for us. This is why we need the Spirit. Because we need faith to be created within our hearts. Well, Catechism says that the Spirit uses then this faith that he gifts us so that we might receive Christ and all his benefits. One way you can think about this as faith is, is, is like the hand that receives Christ and all of his gifts. It's as if at, uh, in, in, in Christ's ascension, Christ goes up to heaven and the Spirit comes down with a, a sack of gifts that he is spreading before the people of God. The Spirit comes and, and, and takes the spoils that Christ earned in his first coming through his victory over the ancient serpent. And he brings the spoils of his victory to the church. The Spirit comes to deliver gifts to us. And he even allows us to be able to receive it by creating faith in us. Faith are the hands that receive these gifts, these gifts of, of, of Christ and all his benefits. You'll see this in verses 12 through 15 of John 16, where we read that the Spirit will glorify Christ in verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit's job is to declare and bring Christ to the people of God. Now, what are these benefits what are these benefits that the Spirit brings? Well, the benefits that the Spirit brings are all of the things that Christ accomplished in his first coming. Christ came to this earth not for himself. He came to this earth for us. He did the things that he did primarily for us so that we might have the benefits of his redemption or of benefits of, of our redemption that he earned for us. And so think about the things that we've already considered in the Apostles' Creed, the various stages of his earthly ministry. Think about his holy conception and birth. Question 30, answer 36, tells us directly how this benefits us. It says that the way in which we benefit from Christ's holy conception and birth is that Christ is our mediator and by his innocence and perfect holiness covers in God's sight our sin in which we were conceived. So the benefit of Christ's holy conception is that Christ was the only individual ever conceived apart from sin. All of us were conceived in sin. Psalm 51, David says, in sin my mother conceived me. That's true of every single one of us. Our sinful human nature didn't begin when we made our first volitional sin as a toddler. Our sinful nature began in the womb. In sin, my mother conceived me. Well, Jesus was the only person who that was not true for. 
Jesus was conceived apart from sin. Adam was not his father. And thus, when you come to Christ by faith, in God's sight, he sees you as if you were conceived apart from sin. He sees you as if you have this holy disposition and heart that's been completely untainted by sin. That's how righteous God the Father sees you through the prism of Christ. Well, think about Christ's life of righteousness, the holy uh, works and merit that he earned before his Father. His works, his merits, are, are, it's like the stitching that make up this robe that, that God dresses your naked body in. God dresses, uh, he strips all of the filth off of your body and dresses you in Christ's righteous robe so that in God's sight, he sees you as not only having a pure heart from his holy conception, but also having clean hands. Clean hands. So in God's sight, you are perfectly and completely righteous. As if you have always obeyed, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Think about Jesus' death. Jesus' death benefits you in that Jesus suffers the penalty of all of your sins. He satisfies the wrath of God. He drinks the cup to its very dregs, the cup of God's wrath, so that God the Father can say to you, that he has thrown all of your sins and iniquities into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed and put away your sin. Think about Jesus' resurrection. That guarantees both your inward resurrection, being born again, regeneration, and your final outward resurrection on the last day. Think about Jesus' ascension. Jesus says in this Upper Room Discourse at another point that he ascends to his Father to prepare a room for us. Think about that. Jesus is reserving a room in the new creation for you. Boys and girls, you probably have a room at home. You may share a room with siblings in your house. Well, Jesus says that he has left this earth to prepare a room, a particular room with your name on it. That's the benefit of Christ's ascension. Think about Christ's session that guarantees that we will one day be reigning with him, not over this present creation, but over the new creation. The Spirit is the one who brings the spoils of Christ's victory to us, of his conception, of his life and, uh, of righteousness, of his death, of his resurrection, of his ascension, of his ascension, and of his session. The Spirit brings Christ and all his benefits to us. This is the job of, of the Spirit for us in this age between, uh, between the two advents of Christ. I mentioned this before, but one uh, illustration from the late J.I. Packer, which I find very helpful, is he you know, describes the work of the Spirit, especially in this age, as, as that of a spotlight. Many times throughout the epistles, we, we hear of the Spirit being referred to as the Spirit, capital S Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, meaning the, the Spirit's job is to shine the spotlight upon Christ and what He did to accomplish our redemption. So again, let's say you go to a Broadway or a, a Broadway show or a play or a drama, and you go and you take your seat, and of course there's going to be spotlights in the back of the room that illuminate the stage so that you can see the production. Now imagine you go to this, this, uh, this production, and right before the event is going to begin, everyone in the audience turns around and stares at the spotlights the whole time. 
pretty crazy, wouldn't it? No, you go there to look at the stage, and the spotlights are there to illuminate the, spa uh, the stage. In a similar way, the Spirit's job is not to draw attention to itself, to himself, but the Spirit's job is to function like a spotlight and shine the light upon the stage of Christ and what he has done for his people. And so when the Spirit as, is at work, Christ will be exalted. Spirit creates faith in our hearts that we can receive Christ and all his benefits. The last two things that we see in this question and answer is that the Spirit comforts us. He comforts me. John 15, 7 refers to the Spirit as a helper. Another way to translate this is a comforter or an advocate. The Spirit comes and he comforts us. Romans 8 says that the Spirit, the capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with my spirit that, or our spirit, that we are children of God. Paul doesn't uh, collapse the two together. The spirit is not our spirit. There's a distinction between the Holy Spirit and our spirit. But the spirit bears witness, bears witness to us through the promises of Scripture that we are the children of God. The spirit comforts us. We also read that the spirit abides with us forever, meaning the spirit guarantees our continued perseverance in the Christian faith. Not only do we have a high priest praying for us, as we considered earlier, but we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, ensuring that we will make it to the end when Christ returns and makes all things new. Ephesians chapter 1 speaks about how the Spirit is the down payment or the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Remember this once being described by uh, by another pastor I found to be very helpful. Throughout scripture, salvation is described as, as, as existing on the top of a mountain, Mount Zion. And Christ ascended to the top of this mountain. He's seated at God's right hand. And it's as if he is going fishing from that throne. And he casts the hook of his spirit into every mouth of the Father's elect and is slowly reeling his people up to himself. And the promise that we are told here is that we can never spit out the hook of his spirit. If he hooks us, that hook is staying, staying put. The spirit guarantees that we will one day be where Christ is. The spirit comforts us and the spirit remains with us forever. Now, I do want to draw your attention to what this catechism doesn't say. Notice what this catechism question answer doesn't say. It doesn't say anything about the Spirit causing us to be able to exercise these, the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit that we witness in the New Testament. It doesn't speak anything about prophecy or tongues or extraordinary healings being given to us as spiritual gifts. And thus, implicitly, the catechism is telling us that these things, these extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, are not normative for the church today. I'd like to just briefly comment on, on that issue. It's very important when we read Scripture that we know what era we are, we are in in redemptive history. For instance, when you read... Uh, the Old Testament, or much of the Old Testament, the Old Testament under the Mosaic Covenant, which makes up most of the Old Testament, 
you will come across a lot of uh, sacrifices, a lot of ceremon ceremonies that were, uh, that, were, that were commanded in the Old Testament law. These were things, these were laws, these were commandments that God gave to the people of Israel. And this was how God was to deliver Christ ahead of time. So the way in which they, the Israelites learned about Christ was through the law. They realized that they can't keep the law and thus they needed a perfect God-man to come who would keep the law in their place. They learned of Christ ahead of time through the sacrifices and particularly they learned that they needed a sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice that could fully remove sins. And so the ancient Israelites engaging in these sacrifices and these ceremonies of the law was a good thing for them to do. They were being obedient. They were receiving Christ as a means of grace. However, when we fast forward, after the coming of Christ, particularly in the book of Hebrews, if we sacrifice animals with religious purposes, we are cutting ourselves off from Christ. This is an abominable practice. So again, it's very, it's very important that we know what era of redemptive history we live in because in the Old Testament, it was a good thing for them to engage in animal sacrifice. It was the way in which they learned of Christ. After the coming of Christ, it's heretical. We're cutting ourselves off from Christ, and it's an abominable practice. So again, when we read scripture, we can't just make a one-to-one -one application from them to us. We have to know what era in redemptive history we are in. And so the apostolic period is a distinctive period, an epoch, an era in the drama of, of God's story of redemption. The apostles were members of the foundation of the church, along with the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And therefore, if the apostolic office is part of that foundation, so too are the apostolic gifts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that we are not to relay a new foundation, but rather we are to build upon that foundation. Which means that we, as those who live after the time of the apostles, we belong to the walls of this, this new creation temple, this building. We don't belong to the foundation. And we are not to relay a new foundation. And so these extraordinary gifts of the Spirit were purposeful for that era of redemptive history, but are not normative for us today because we belong to a different era. This is one of the reasons why we don't recognize the continuation of an apostolic office in the papacy. This is why we don't see a continuation of the apostolic gifts in Pentecostalism, because we recognize that God uses various means and methods to build his church in different eras and epochs of redemptive history. So it's very important that we know what era we live in. And we now live in an era which the Spirit is active. Right? We confess that the Spirit's active, but he's active through the word and the sacraments to create faith in our hearts and deliver Christ and all his benefits to us. So let us